0: The sun's out, bums are out, and hopefully your pubes are not out. Also, flip-flop season is upon us, and you're out here with those post-pandemic toenails. Don't worry, our friends at Manscaped have you covered. They just launched their fourth-generation performance package and their Shears 2.0 nail grooming kit. Join the Manscaped movement by going to manscaped.com for 20% off, plus free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID. Hey, Om, who do you think Manscaped today?
1: I think it definitely had to be Donnarumma. And obviously, it's hard to tell when all the players' clothes are on and we can't really inspect all the parts. But you can sometimes tell just from the confidence that a player has. And when Donnarumma made that final winning save on the penalty, he just walked away stone cold, right? No reaction, acted like he'd been there before. And that's the confidence that comes when you manscape, right? You just go out there, do your thing, and you don't need to act like a child after you've just won the Euro Cup. You just look around and be like, I'm the boss. And that's the feeling manscape gives you.
2: Well, there was a player who uh, played in a final this weekend as well, Real Madrid player, Casemiro, who did not manscape. He did not have all of uh, the new fourth generation package. He didn't have the, the nail clippers, and that's exactly what you need when you're playing a final. You need to make sure you're groomed from head to toe. So, unfortunately, Casemiro didn't get that memo. Hopefully, he'll have it at the start of the new Real Madrid season.
0: Well, the Performance Package 4.0 also includes the new Lawnmower 4.0, and this trimmer will change the way you approach your grooming routine. Listeners, get 20% off plus free shipping with the code managingmadrid at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code ManagingMadrid at Manscaped.com. Tame that summer swamp in your pants with Manscaped. This episode is also brought to you by the Managing Madrid podcast World Tour. We announced two new cities since our last podcast last week. So uh, the total list now is LA, Toronto, Dallas, New York, Miami, London, and Chicago. The two newest ones are London and Chicago. And, um... Yeah, so we have more coming. It's been crazy to see the response to this list as we've been announcing them on social media and on Patreon. Tickets are already flying, and you know we're booking these really far in advance so you guys have noticed, and they're filling up fast. So make sure, especially, I'm just being really honest with you guys, if you're in LA, Toronto, and New York, those three in particular are going f- really fast. And I think it's gonna be a packed house, and I don't. I think we're gonna have to cap it at some point. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, I would urge you to go and click on it. It'll be on the show notes. You can just click on the show notes and click on the city you want, and um, and reserve your spot there because early bird tickets are flying right now. And uh, if you guys want to come, make sure you get in quickly because I'm not sure we'll be back to those cities at all. So go and check out the city you're interested in, and um, even if you're in like surrounding area, if you're in Ontario or. Quebec go to Toronto if you're anywhere in California Seattle Vegas just drive to LA if you're anywhere in Texas just drive to Dallas Um, same goes for New York etc so um, go book your spots and make sure you join the party I also want to shift your direction to the latest column I wrote which is up on the site now it's my annual transfers column which I go in and basically look at the entire Real Madrid squad everyone who's in training this week and beyond who will be part of the squad next year? Who will leave? Who will arrive? What is the club's vision on signing superstars? Can they do it? It's all on the website now. It's pinned on the homepage. It's called Real Madrid Summer. Who goes where? Who stays? Who leaves? And who arrives? Go check that out. And today's podcast is super fun. It's nice to have those long-winded conversations with Matt and Ulm again. It's been a while. We haven't really done that since the season ended. So it was nice to revisit that. We tackle both of the finals, Copa America and the Euro final today. And uh, we get into a lot of details, but also just talk about uh, some of the big picture stuff that came out of these two tournaments and even dive into the GOAT debate towards the end of there. So, um, yeah, obviously that's going to be a hot topic with Messi finally winning last night. So, yeah, enjoy it. Kick your feet up. Take your time with this one. There's no games for a while until the Olympics start. So really take your time and enjoy it. And let's go. Nice
1: article in the Managing Madrid Uh, blog and wonderful lads that do a great job there and worth reading about that man there
0: Hello and welcome to a Sunday night edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Keon Sobani. We are about to break down two finals, two finals very different from each other. And uh, I'm excited to talk about football again. You know, we thought about for a split second to maybe focusing on Real Madrid's secret exhibition match against Fuenlabrada. But I think we're going to steer away from that um, and focus on the heavy hitters in world football. So joining me, Keon Sobani are matt Wilty and om arvin it's the uh three musketeers we haven't really joined forces for for a while it f- feels like maybe at the end of the season we did it but i don't know if we have since then so um welcome to the show om if you could describe the difference between the copa america final and the euro 2020 final in like three words what would it be
1: In three words uh, um I guess conservatism versus brutality. Like I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because like I, I'm I'm not gonna pretend Take like the this lesser Euro, of two evils. <laughs> I'm not gonna pretend this Euro final was like uh, this amazing spectacle because we obviously know how England play at this point and they scored really early so that affected how the rest of the game played out. But. Copa America final was like a different animal entirely and I hadn't been I hadn't watched any Copa America up until that point. It was I had had all my focus on the Euro, so I was like I just don't have the energy to pay attention to it. And I've watched Copa Americas in the past like more rigorously, whenever like the last one was, like what with, 2000, I don't they have one every year, but like 2019 I think was the last one. I think I remember covering that for between the posts or maybe it was the one before. I don't remember it being like what I saw and uh, it wasn't a very good football game in the traditional sense, like in, in terms of like the actual football being played, but I guess if you can find humor and we always try to, but like in the things like people just beating the shit out of each other and stuff, I guess it was like a really fun game to watch. And there were people who were like telling me and getting mad at me and saying it was actually a really fun game when I like kind of poked fun at it. But yeah, I, two two finals that weren't necessarily amazing spectacles, but still somehow just very very different and perhaps emblematic of both tournaments. I mean, I don't know if that was reflective of Copa America as a whole. You guys have watched a lot more than me, but a lot of people were telling me that it was worse than the other game.
0: Matt, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. But like, I've had I've come to this like dilemma in and I've realized this in the past month or so watching both the Euros and Copa America. That, you know, I consider myself a guy who is pretty fascinated with tactics. It's part of the reason why I really like analyzing the game. I like, you know, studying it. I like to collaborate with you guys and learn from you guys. And I like to, you know, just develop develop my understanding of the game as much as I can. I find those, like, the tactical chess pieces, even the, the scoreless ones, pretty interesting and fascinating. I can drag out a conversation on those things. However, I also realized in the past month or so... The less tactics there are in a game, the more fun it can be. Like, I'm thinking back to the games I've enjoyed most in the past, like, I don't know, two, three weeks, however, however long it's been. Belgium, Italy, a, uh, a game with absolutely zero defense was fun as hell. Um, England, uh, Argentina, Brazil, which was, it, it felt like watching a different sport and i'm not really sure what was going on but it was fun to watch even though it was like it was not this pretty game with composure and beautiful passing and all it was just fun in a different way so i've kind of just like started to realize like you know as much as it is fun analyzing tactics and these defensive structures sometimes when tactics go out the window that and the chaos flies open like it, that's when it that's when it becomes really
1: fun
2: Yeah, from a pure entertainment value, I think I found the Copa America final more entertaining than the Euro. I just, I really struggled to to engage with the Euro final. And I think um, once you got past, like the first 20, 30 minutes of the Copa final, I felt like was just needless foul after needless foul. You talk about the brutality, but a lot of it, some of it were just ridiculous dives. And when you saw one that really mattered, Neymar was. Kind of shouldering the challenges and able to stand up on his feet but uh they got neymar but just the players in general but when the game was the early stages everybody was going down like like you can't believe and so it, it made it so stop start that it was difficult to watch but as that game went on i think it it gradually got better and it gradually became more fun and entertaining as you mentioned Keon. and then both teams were just so desperate for the win especially and especially brazil obviously in their home stadium dying to try and get a goal in those final minutes and so that made it a little bit more fun to watch do you guys like feel like you are kind of
0: watching the game today like how did you process the momentum shift from england to italy because watching those first 20-30 minutes i remember and i tweeted this out that that was probably the most fun i've had watching england play all tournament and i was really like i was happy for them i was like this is you know, with all the talent they have, this is the way they should be playing. Kane dropping into midfield, connecting the dots. The the crossfield switches to Trippier, whose overloads were causing Italy all kinds of problems. Um, Shaw on the opposite side too. And then all of a sudden, Italy just kind of found themselves back in the game. They started to get more composed. Their buildup improved. Their movement improved. Admittedly, they didn't really get past, you know, England's box much. But they grew back into the game and England's press kind of just ran out of gas. It ran out of energy and things just kind of balanced out in a way where it became a balanced playing field again. And it felt like that England start, that frenetic start that they had, it seemed like so long ago. Once you like fast forward to the penalty shootouts and you're like, wow, like I almost forgot I tweeted that because like, like literally after 30 minutes, England just weren't the same anymore and the game completely changed. So Ohm, like, what was your assessment of that? Like, is it just a matter of they couldn't sustain it? Was it Italy being able to kind of understand some of their weaknesses and what they had to adjust? What did, you, what did you see?
1: Well, so there's two parts of it because I think the game became rather different after Southgate made his changes, but obviously it was Italy's equalizer that spurned that. And what led to Italy's equalizer is obviously things Italy were doing themselves, you know, the defending on the set piece and stuff, that all can be talked about. But I think England just went a little too far with the conservatism. And it's been a massive talking point, almost an exhausting one by this point. Like every single time England play, it comes up. It's it's a debate. Steve McManaman has to say the exact same three lines he says on the ESPN broadcast about how he wants the team to be more positive instead of negative. And it's just dominated the entire discourse of the tournament. And I think largely it's been fine. Largely, I think it's been beneficial because this is what international football is like over the short term, over cup competitions. We know that being conservative tends to help you. But obviously, you can always go too far to one extreme. And even though I think England do it really well in terms of defending without the ball, whether that's pressing or being in a block, and most of this game was just being in a block because they were 1-0 up and whether and and also like holding the ball like and it almost feels sacrilegious to say this but they had a defensive possession approach that was quite similar to spain especially in the 2010 world cup and i think we forget that spain side just they just grinded past opponents like one nil victories it wasn't necessarily very pretty either and england i think are a side that's more oriented to being better without the ball but they also have a similar defensive possession approach. They just obviously don't have the midfield that Spain did. And I thought it's largely served them very well up until this point. But when you got to that second half, I think they just took it too far, right? So the interesting thing with England's conservatism is they've always been somewhat Aggressive with their defending, in that we saw how they went man to man versus against Germany, right, and not necessarily pressing all the time, but definitely being willing to step up on the center backs, and that just became less and less and less and less as the game wore on. Gave more and more space to Chiellini and Bonucci on the ball, and then they almost looked scared to do what had served them so well throughout this entire tournament, which was hold on to possession, right, regain the ball, defend with the ball. And it just became too much, right? You can defend as well as you as well as anyone, right? But if you just keep on facing that kind of pressure and the opponent has the ball so much, eventually something can happen, like that set piece where the bounce goes against you, and then you're in a position where all of a sudden you can't really react. And, and this is a really interesting thing to me because Southgate then goes on to make quote unquote positive substitutions, right? Changes the formation, goes to a four three three. He he. He brings on Saka, and that is supposed to be good, right? But the interesting thing to me is is I didn't think there was anything wrong with the formation because I thought it was doing well to stymie Italy defensively, and we can get into that whole conversation about why. Um, but it's almost a question of, like, can you get England into a more positive mindset while maintaining that shape and maintaining that personnel? Because to me, like, the the solution or vacuum is not necessarily to, to change the shape or anything. Just ask the team to be more positive. But that's easier said than done, right? It's interesting to me, like, how does the mentality of the players work? Is it actually possible when they've been playing that way for, like, 67 minutes or whatever, for the coach to just yell and say, hold on to the ball more or press a little more, Maybe that's not how the mind works and maybe it requires uh, a change like that to try to get the team playing on the front foot. But I think it just made things so much more chaotic because what the back five gave them and the entire way they were set up with the front three blocking off all those lanes was it matched what Italy were trying to do by having three players in the half spaces and Barella up and stepping up really high. And then it blocked off the ability for Bonucci to play those line-breaking balls. And as soon as they went back four, and and at at, Mm -hmm. at a similar time, Mancini made those subs, right, where Insigne became the false nine, Berardi came on, and they had more threat between the lines. It just made it easier for Italy to play their normal possession game. And in my opinion, that's why, despite the fact that England tried to push forward, tried to be more offensive... It didn't really do anything for them because all of a sudden Italy's own offensive game became better. It's it's really weird and like complicated how that all ended up working out. But I, I think that's probably the most interesting kind of discussion point there. Why, why Southgate going more offensive didn't really do anything for them. And, and, and why Italy just continued to dominate that second half until extra time.
2: If you think about it, honestly scoring that goal in the second minute may have been the kiss of death for them because then they started to retreat into their shell and become take that take that conservatism to the extreme and I think um, obviously you're right we know that those conservative tactics and um playing the way England did and the way Southgate set them up has been tremendously successful in international football and it's worked really well for them but to retreat so early on and to give this Italy team, which um, has proven over the the course of the tournament that they're, they're so good at uh, developing, just finding ways to poke holes in the defense and creating triangles all over the pitch and good interplay and passing within the final third. Like they, they've got the quality and the technique that the technical players to, to do that. And so, I think eventually Italy grinded them down. And even though the goal came from kind of a, a sloppy set piece, it still felt like it was coming. It was coming for Italy. They were gaining momentum um and england were were kind of just holding on at that point. I mean, having Chiesa himself had a couple shots that nearly went in. And so I just felt like I never get excited to watch this England team. and i you I think a lot of people just get frustrated. Uh, And Steve McManaman keeps saying the same thing just because they have so many talented players. They're not utilizing them all and they're not playing exactly to their strengths. And so I feel like they just they went to the extreme on their with their conservative tactics and their more defensive approach. And, And that's where it's frustrating because you feel like they're capable of doing so much more.
0: Well, the conservatism serves a a purpose in a sense that it's got them to the final, like, you know, whether we find it entertaining or not. And if you look at what it took in this game, um, even despite Italy kind of growing into the game, they still, like, were limiting them to Chiesa genius, line-breaking, individual brilliance. uh, And those are the chances they were conceding. And they took it to penalties. But I do think, like, to your point, and... To sympathize with Steve McManaman, I guess I don't know how, I don't know what side we are. We I just keep hearing his name, and I don't know if it's snarky or not. But um, I think I don't like, think
2: Ohm's on his side.
0: Yeah, Ohm sounded a little bit I, passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I I I'm no dog in this fight. I love. We talk Om, about I like, watching
1: England being boring. It's another thing entirely to watch Steve McManaman and his punditry. But anyway, we he's a former Real Madrid player, amazing player. So let's not slander him too much. Um.
0: With, uh, yeah, I also will have to probably bump into him a few times in, in the press this, this coming season. So no sound bites, please. We love you, Steve. Um, I think with, I guess the frustration is that when you have a team this talented, you just kind of want to see them put their foot on the opponent's throat a little bit more. Like, and I honestly felt like they played all their cards in the first like 30 minutes. Italy figured out, like, okay, Kane is basically acting as, as another midfielder here. He's playing the Benzema role. And basically, the role he's been playing is at Tottenham, too. It's not a secret or anything, obviously. But um, And then they figured out the Trippier overloads. They started to pack the flanks a little bit better. They started to defend a little better. If you look at it, like, Trippier, after 30 minutes, like, what was he doing? And this kind of brings us to the subs. Like, so Saka comes in for Trippier in the 71st minute. Henderson for, De- for Declan Rice. I guess, like... Trippier was having a good game, but also he kind of disappeared. And so I don't mind the Saka sub. Um, and Henderson, Rice, like, covered an insane amount of ground this game. And I actually thought he played well on both ends, at least in terms of work rate and the coverage off the ball. He was probably just gassed the Henderson came on. But Henderson's probably not improving that midfield at this point. I don't think he did. He had some ridiculously bad passes as well. So, But I'm curious to, to ask you guys about Saka over Sancho and Rashford, because I guess yeah, I guess like go ahead. Well, just that I don't really know if I, like how I see Rashford necessarily as a right wing back in that scheme. For example, I guess there was a little bit of formation sh- change, so it won't be quite that he's mostly on the wing. But um, do you, like I for defensive purposes, maybe Saka's a little bit more conservative in that regard than Sancho is who might go a little bit gung-ho and god forbid do something and attack like what do you think the thinking was behind that
1: yeah that's the only way I understand it so this is the bigger issue for me with the way Southgate approaches him the entire tournament I agree completely about taking the conservatism too far specifically in this game I think the other time we saw it was versus Scotland where Game State did not play in their favor and they needed to start picking up the pace and they just couldn't figure out a way to do it. Obviously, this one is the more relevant example. Um, But, okay, yeah, he went too conservative, but we're still at a point where it's 1-1, right? And I kind of said my whole thing about the formation change and being skeptical about that working for me because the 3-4-3 or the the, uh, 5-2-3, like, however you want to phrase it, doesn't need to be like this insanely defensive formation, right? Like you, in fact, have three attackers up front. And um, not that Chelsea weren't a very good defensive team, but we saw, especially versus us, how they could play when they wanted to to play more on the front foot or play a really good transition game. To me, the the answer was, I think, within that shape that still kept things sawed defensively to then accelerate things for there. Again, whether that's realistic or not, I I, I don't know. But for me, it was, again, because of what I explained, it was a little bit of a problem that he changed it. But the fact that he's consistently gone to Saka over Sancho this tournament would be something that I'd be more irritated with as opposed to the general game plan and general approach. Because I like Saka. I think he's a very good player. You guys have watched a lot of Arsenal because of Tobias, obviously. And so I'm I'm guessing you guys have seen what Saka has done for Arsenal and how he's had to carry so much for that side at such a young age. But if we're just being honest, there's a difference between Saka, a really good, really promising young talent, and Jadon Sancho, one of the best players in the world, and the best young English talent since Wayne Rooney. Like, it just doesn't really compare. And this is where the conservatism going too far, I think, can be applied to game management and it can be applied to substitutes, because I do believe that he probably picked Saka because Saka has experience as a wingback. And so it's probably a little more disciplined defensively. But how much control are you really using, especially if you keep the formation and you brought Sancho on for mount or something? How how much control are you really losing just because Sancho has a little less, you know, uh, I guess, discipline and attention to defensive duties? And how much more are you gaining by the fact that Sancho is one of the best attackers in the world? Like... This is where it just gets a bit too much for me and where I start to understand the frustrations. And then to only bring him and Rashford on for penalties, like, was just... It, it was almost like... I know he wasn't doing that, but it was almost like he was mocking us. Like, yeah, i, I the way Sancho has been used this entire tournament, Grealish I'm a little more understanding of because I, I think Sterling's been fantastic. And I, I don't know if you can necessarily bench Sterling, but... Man, the thing with Sancho is has been really puzzling for me and it's the thing that would probably irritate me the most if I was invested in England winning, which I'm not. I was rooting for Italy. But yeah, I I, I don't get it. I, I This is where I think it goes too far. And when you do the cost-benefit analysis, I think you're missing the bigger picture when you think, well, Saka gives me a little more defensively. You already have enough defensively. You already have more than enough. You're the best defensive team in the tournament by a long way. I don't think Sancho really takes that away.
2: Yeah, and, and we've watched uh, Sancho just as much as Saka because of Ashraf and Reynier. And honestly, out of all the teams we've had to track on the loan tracker, AC Milan, Tottenham, Arsenal, Sancho has probably been the player that's impressed me the most. That is not owned by Madrid. I mean, that he's impressed me the most. He's been... Unbelievable over the last two years. What is it? Two He's been at Dorman and he's just ah, what, what a player! What a player! And I, I, I agree with you. i have been so ridiculously frustrated at the way Southgate's treated him, the way Southgate's used him, how underutilized he's been. I feel like everyone, you've seen it all over. Uh, any Bundesliga pundit and fans are just going crazy saying. I feel like. Every uh, German president and coach has come out and said, like, what are they doing with Sancho? Why aren't they playing Sancho? Because they all know how ridiculously talented he is. And he is, I mean, I agree with you, Oum. I think he is one of those players who can make the difference and can be the guy that is kind of a a game-changing talent that will get you on the score sheet or get you an assist. And so it's been frustrating to see how he's used. And I don't don't agree with the Saka move. I really like Saka but I would have preferred to see Sancho. And that's just kind of, this is Gareth Southgate things. This is what we've come accustomed to throughout the tournament.
0: The The common argument I saw from many fans was, well, Sancho has done nothing in this tournament. I'm like, dude, do you, like, some? there should be like some kind of, Twitter should be allowed to like disqualify people from <laughs> using Twitter. Like, how do you even say, like, he hasn't had a chance. Like he didn't prove himself. It's it's kind of like the same idea as like, you know, when Real Madrid someone plays for Real Madrid like one minute a season, they're like, well, he didn't prove himself. He didn't. He didn't. That one minute, we saw nothing. So Zidane was justified. Like it's that kind of like look. We all saw Sancho. Sancho, literally after Mbappe, Holland probably is the player I'd be most excited about in terms of just pure attacking positions as a from a young talent perspective you'd you'd want to have in your team um he's he's probably right there in like tier b and he's he's a talent that like it's hard to if you have him in a squad it's hard to just not have him on the field like that it's pretty pretty head scratching um i wanted to talk to you guys about some big picture stuff here um do you guys feel like you know irrespective of, like, how this game went, but, you know, obviously you count this game too, but do you think these were the two best teams in this tournament?
1: I do. I think they I think they were the two best. I think the... I really like Denmark, and what they showed with 11 men versus England really impressed me, because I think they also had a pretty easy run opponent-wise up until that point, and so... I, I saw the process. I thought it was great, but I was like, "What does it look like versus an elite side?" And versus England, it looked good, and I, I felt vindicated in really rating them. But I think they're just below like the top tier of teams. I would say the 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 main team that has like is in the conversation for the best is probably Spain, but I just don't trust their ability in both boxes, mainly the back line, uh, like I do with these other teams, like. It's a bit weird to say when I think Spain outmatched Italy in that first half, but I think Italy are better than Spain. Um, I think they're, they're just more solid defensively. I think they press better. I think they manage game state better. And then England, defensively, far and away, the best team in the tournament. best Probably best offensive set-piece team in the tournament right alongside Italy. Really good defensive possession team. Not that good at playing on the front foot, which doesn't matter as much in the international tournament. Despite Italy winning, I'd probably say that England are still the best team. Um, but yeah, I, I guess the other team people might throw in there is Germany. But Germany, if if I had issues with Spain's backline, I mean, with I, I can't pick Germany considering just how vulnerable they are to any team that tries to hit them in transition. Um, And I think offensively, Germany actually might have the argument for being the best team, but they're just so vulnerable at the back. And the double pivot they've often played for most of this tournament hasn't necessarily helped them either. So, yeah, I would probably say these are the two best teams. Um, I I see the argument for Spain, but outside of that, it starts to become hard. Maybe people talk about France and Portugal based on what they've done previously, but I think the coaching was so bad in this tournament that I just take that as, as part of what the team is and I can't include them.
2: Yeah, I think for me, just given the tournament, um, I would say Spain. I would I think especially how they held up against Italy in the semifinal and what what a good game that was. I I think they're in the conversation. Otherwise I I don't I don't really know. I think those England and Italy was was the two teams. But I, I actually I did count if you remember. Um and called the winner. So this is uh yeah, this is uh, a, who did
1: you say one? I said Italy. No way. Yeah. yeah. No Matt way. had Italy from the yeah. beginning.
2: We did a
0: podcast before the Euro star. We had all these predictions. Matt picked Italy. You had Luke. Let's, well, let's go over that really quickly. Like in 10 seconds, you had Lukaku <laughs> as, your, as your top scorer, right? Um, yeah. Who won the golden shoe? Um, Cristiano Ronaldo won. And then he was, was uh, Tied Unaruma. with else. And with Patrick Schick. Uh, yeah. I had Benzema who had four goals. Um, my break... Oh, my breakout star was... Was it not Chiesa? Chiesa. It was. I feel like I won yeah, that one. You're I don't Chiesa. know if he actually won the award, but I'm going to say he won. He should it. have. Is,
2: it, is, he did
1: is Chiesa really a breakout star, though? Like... I well, mean, as long as been... they're like
2: under 23, I think it, it counts. Okay. Okay. It's like young I mean, player.
1: The criteria, but shouldn't it be Pedri? I mean, even Pedri to me isn't yeah, me yeah, a breakout star, but Pedri was yeah. the best young player of the tournament, I think. Like P- Pedri, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um,
2: I don't remember what else we had, but uh, Golden Gloves. We had Donnarumma. I think you said Dunaruma. and maybe I did too. I don't remember half so. the stuff I say. Like I don't. <laughs> I don't think.
1: I don't think Donnarumma is the MVP of the tournament, but I do believe he was the best keeper. And I know his name has been thrown around a lot in, like, prior years when we were talking about, okay, who's, like, the next elite keeper we're going to sign. And for whatever reason, his name just fell off the radar in that regard. I mean, obviously, we signed Courtois, but, like, signing Navas and stuff, that never stopped us from talking about him. And it's weird to me because I think he's really established himself as, like, one of the best shot stoppers in the world. I think he's terrible with his feet. What he did versus Spain and some of the passes he played just killed me. It was a nightmare watching that. But he, I guess the thing with him is he makes really good saves look less spectacular because his positioning is so good and he's so big that he's not flying around as much as other goalkeepers. But his shot-stopping numbers are superb, just from a technical perspective, from what I understand of it, and and like talking to some goalkeeping coaches I know, I mean, they all love him. And I I think he was pretty easily the best keeper in this tournament just on a game-to-game basis. Um, And, yeah, I mean... I, I don't know why we stopped talking about him. I guess it just got boring or something. But this dude is is going to be great for the next ten years. I mean, he's got like a Buffon like career ahead of him if if he holds up this quality.
0: Speaking of uh, ball at his feet, I admire so much Ederson last night. Like in the face of that UFC pinball game where everything was flying and bones were breaking. And all the pressure and all the Brazil's bad passes. Ederson was so cool and composed with the ball at his feet. You're just hitting like these pinpoint vertical passes and these diagonal balls, while like Argentinian players were like just breathing down his neck. But I, I remember the Donnarumma thing, and I think part of the reason for him is that probably because he plays for Milan. Like now at PSG, maybe he, we just talk about him more by nature, and especially after a tournament like this. But he's still it still blows my mind that he's only 22. Like I remember like, I think it was like two years ago. I was like, I went on this, um, this thing on the podcast where I was like, does anybody know that Donnarumma is only 20 and he's been around for 10 years and now he's still only 22 and it feels like it's been 30 years. He's just been around since he was literally 16. It's like the Martin Odegaard syndrome. Like no matter how, how much time passes, he's just still this little kid. Um, so he just has so much left ahead of him. And I, I thought he was awesome today. And even the the way he just walked away from saving the penalty, like cold-blooded, just doesn't even make a, I thought first maybe he was like – the reason I thought maybe he wasn't celebrating was because he wanted to make sure that it stood if like he went off his line or whatever. But like, no, he knew it was going to stand and he just walked away all serious. Um, badass moment from Donnarumma. Um, oh, that- he, okay, mm.
1: we we have to talk about Saka being the last guy to take that penalty because I don't understand what the decision-making goes there because he's, what, 19 years old, insane pressure on him. He, he I think he played a really bad game when he came on, so that wouldn't have settled him in. I mean, first of all, some other senior player has to step up and be like, "There's no way I'm letting this kid." Well, doesn't
2: Grealish take him for Aston Villa? Am I wrong? Like, he seems like perfect candidate. He's to a step he, up he's there. a good
1: penalty. I, anyone could. I mean, I I, I don't know. Maybe he's a really good penalty taker in practice. This isn't practice. This is the Euro final. This is the last penalty even if Saka steps up and says, like, someone else has to make an argument or, or Southgate has to pick someone else, like, you can't put that on a kid. And it was it was an awful penalty. Like, it was... I, I, obviously, I praise Don Ruba so much, but most keepers in the world are saving that if they guess right. And they did. Like, how do you put that pressure on him when he didn't even have a good game, right? Like, it just a baffling decision to me. I... I I don't, know, I don't know whether to blame Southgate or the senior players within the squad for not being like, no, 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 I'm not letting that happen. I'm taking the penalty. I'm not letting them. I mean, I, I, I guess you can't make decisions based on abuse you're going to receive, but imagine the abuse he's going to receive now. Like, that's just not something a 19-year-old should have to face, in my opinion. But do you think, like, let me
0: pitch a scenario to you. Um, I had an interesting discussion with Diego about this when after the Spain-Italy penalty shootout where... I was like, "Do you think?" Because we all knew that Morata was gonna miss this. Like nobody in that stadium. <laughs> like I'm serious. It's not. I'm not even like. It's not even meant to be a joke.
1: No, I agree. You no, know, you. like I agree with you. We
0: knew. Everyone watching at home knew. Everyone in the stadium knew. The keeper knew. He knew. Luis Enrique knew. His family and kids at home knew. If he has kids, he's not he's scoring that penalty. So, do you think? There's an obligation from Luis Enrique or one of the senior players to step in and be like, Look, Alvaro, I know you feel like you have to do this because if you don't, then. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. It's about winning, right? Yeah. It's about, like, we already saw Murata miss one earlier, and in that game, I don't know why he was the one taking it, right? Like, even, even people who defend Murata, and I've, you know, I I've thought his overall play has been pretty good in this tournament. Like, just why, right? And then to make him take the. Even if he asked for someone has to step in. And that's why you have leaders. Like, I don't, like, this is complete speculation, but does Sergio Ramos, like, Morata take that penalty? I don't know. There's a higher chance that probably doesn't happen. Like, yeah, it, it, there's just too much going on. With Morata, it's even more, right? I mean, he's not nearly as young, but, like, the entire country hates him on some days, <laughs> right? He he He's had his own issues in the past, right? He's constantly working against inner demons. Right? I, I don't think you can allow it to happen. Um and someone someone has to step up. Like I, I at least for our Real Madrid squad, I can't imagine us like putting the pressure on like Victor Chus or Vinicius or whoever to take that fifth penalty. I just don't ever see that happen. Like Tony Kroos or Modric or someone else steps up and say, no, nah, that's mine, man. You you could take it later. If we miss it's coming. You can take that, but this is ours. Yeah. I agree with that and I think the funny thing is, <clears throat> with Marata,
2: he—I um, w- guess it was the second group game or third group game where he took a penalty, and he was like, "Yeah, I was proud of the fact that I uh, got the ball, grabbed the ball, and took and decided to take that penalty." Because he was talking about like after the abuse he got and everything, how he grabbed the ball, and so yeah, I think he has like that mentality in him where he like thinks he. He can step up and just handle it but he can't we know he can't everybody knows he can't like you said and so it just has to come to the point where someone just like puts their hand on his chest and says look maratha sit this one out we we, we got this so uh, this is really
0: interesting to me because this is like when when we start talking about psychology and stuff this is where i get really interested in the discussion because there's this whole age-old debate or like the, this really This way of thinking that's been ingrained in us since growing up, and the narrative is always, whoever steps up in the moment, those are your penalty shootout takers. It's not; they're not appointed, right? That's that's something that has been the narrative of commentators we've been watching, like since growing up, or even my youth team coaches. I don't know about you guys, but my youth team coaches would always have a similar thing, Um, and I feel there is a certain like sense of pride that kicks in with every player that where they feel obligated they have to be like well i'm stepping up even if they're not feeling confident they will say i'll step up because i think there's a sense of pride within them that like you know if i don't step up maybe i'll regret it or like i have to like prove myself and i think in that moment their judgment's a little bit clouded and i i feel like there are a lot of players who are not confident who step up in those moments and I think it's kind of hard to decipher who those players are and aren't. And I do think, like with the whole Saka thing, that's a, it's a difficult one, man. Like I, I was reading this study. Um, they did a, it. Uh, I wish I, I have to go back on my Twitter feed and see because I retweeted this was a this was like one or two weeks ago. I don't remember the gentleman who did the study, but he's uh. Psychologists and involved with sports, and they they basically did a study on over a long core sample. I believe it was the largest sample size ever for penalty shootouts, and um, they found a bunch of interesting things. One of the interesting things found was that they found was that the bigger the name on your shirt is, like the bigger brand you are, the more pressure there is, the more likely you are to miss. If you've won a Ballon d'Or, you're more likely to miss than if you take the penalty shot before you won the Ballon d'Or. Um, and so the that side of it is also like, while there was pressure on a younger player, you know, there was also could probably was part of the reason Mbappe missed his penalty too. You could just see it. It's like, oh, this story is too juicy if he misses it. The whole nation and like everyone and all the morale—that's the bad morale that's already in that French squad. It's all going to be his fault now. Like you could feel that when he stepped up. I don't know. It's hard to decipher this. Also, I don't know if you guys believe like. Do you guys feel like you can see it in players' faces when they step up, whether they're going to score or not? Because I felt that way about Belotti today. You could just see
1: it. I mean, I I think there are some tells, right? Like, you can tell when people are nervous. But to put it down to an exact science, I've definitely seen players I thought who looked nervous just put it away. Um, there's yeah. probably, I, I mean, we, we, we all interact with, I mean, Yeah,
2: I was going to say, everybody,
1: before somebody goes up to PK, everybody's like, oh, he's going to miss, or oh, he's going to score, he's got this. (laughs) I mean, I hope hope we all interact with human beings enough to be able to read signs on people's faces, but I don't know if it's nearly precise enough to be complete giveaways. Um, Like, do we necessarily say – I mean, if we see someone go up stone-faced, right, and they miss – I don't think we ever go back and say, like, oh, man, look at the expression on his face. We knew he was going to miss. Like, Ronaldo's missed penalties, mm-hmm. you know, because he always looks the same. He never looks nervous, right? So I think there are some tells. There are definitely some of them where you can tell. I like to joke about the people who do, like, the uh, 10 million stutter steps always missing. Um, with Balotelli, I felt like he was going to miss. With Saka, I felt like he was going to miss. I thought Rashford was going to make it. I just felt like Sancho was going to miss for the completely irrational reason that it would just be funnier for the narrative with everyone saying that Sancho should be on and then Gareth Southgate only bringing him on for the penalty. Um, but... Uh, that probably was drawing, like more pressure. Went? I was shocked Jorginho missed. Yeah, I, I should have tweeted. I can't prove it. I should have tweeted it at the time, but I just thought he was going to miss because everyone was saying he was going to score. Again, completely irrational, right? Like, there's no... I mean, there's nothing to be proud of there because there were no actual reason had, but I just thought he was gonna miss because literally everyone was like, "Oh, Jorginho's is gonna, it's easy, he's gonna make it." So um, no. that that's the thing with penalty analysis. I feel like everyone just looks at it after the fact and then like builds their narrative and their analysis after it all happened, and like with the the Pickford save on the Bilaki one my commentator said that was like an incredible save and it was an awful penalty all he penalty. did was guess correctly that's 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 what I'm talking about right if the goalkeeper guesses the right way it's an amazing save if he guesses the wrong way it's the best penalty ever
0: you know, you can be confident and take a great penalty and still miss I mean there's that side of it too um like the I'm, I gotta say I'm really impressed with mcguire the way he struck that penalty and i've seen him score a penalty like that before like it's just wow amazing um i've lost my train of thought i don't know why
1: <laughs> well one of the I best i felt like I was onto something because i think that was it literally blacked out the camera that's how good it was it was that perfect top i think corner. he didn't did he do that in the man united Villarreal, Villarreal. Some, maybe Pique. that's where I saw yeah,
2: it yeah he, he, he's done it before he's done that exact where he just smashes it Um. yeah I mean
0: I, I had something else to say about this penalty stuff but maybe if I can't think of it we can move on do you guys have anything else you want to say I mean whether it be Sancho, Rashford or something else
1: Oh, uh, I just I just want to ask Matt whether he's ever missed a penalty.
2: Oh yeah, I have <laughs> a
1: lot. <laughs> I I missed I've missed
2: quite a few. What's your shot? I also p- scored. P- I also scored a hat trick of penalties. Though uh, in high school, it was a high school soccer scrimmage, and we somehow got three PKs. So I scored a hat trick of penalties. But I've missed. I've missed like.
1: But we say a lot, a like, these are like actual games, like recorded games.
2: Yeah, actual games. Yeah.
1: So why did they keep letting you take penalties? No one. to be like, Matt, get off them.
2: Well, it's for different teams, so I <laughs> never learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh,
0: oh, this is what I was going to say. Good for Pickford for doing the scouting report on Jorginho that for some reason Unai Simon didn't do. Like, in that Spain Italy penalty shootout. How can you not know how Jorginho takes his penalties? You felt like when I, Simone, had no idea and he jumped way too early and it just it was way too easy. Pickford at least seemed to like, at least know not to budge that too early for
1: the way Jorginho hits it. Um, that was a much better save than the Balaki one. And yeah. I feel like my commentator like just didn't go nearly as crazy for that one. Anyway.
0: Also, uh, Donnarumma, not to save on Sacco, but I, I, I think it was the Rashford one. That one that one was pretty good. The Rashford one wasn't a terrible penalty. But did the
1: Rashford one go on the post?
0: Maybe oh, maybe it was a Sancho one then. Yeah, maybe it was
1: Sancho. Yeah,
2: Sancho's was yeah. was bad.
1: Rashford see, I feel like this tournament did something for people who go up slowly and wait a lot. And I thought that's when you always miss. And I'm glad Rashford missed that one because I just I just I just hate that run up. I don't know why. I just hate it. Like just go up and take the penalty. I like, feel apparently like... there was some someone said something about people who wait longer actually being more successful on penalties which just feels completely counterintuitive to me um, it's yeah it's a thing I've always hated
0: I'll never forget in the uh, the penalty shootout between AC Milan and Juventus I think it was 2003 um, in the final of Champions League where Shevchenko takes the last penalty of the game winning penalty he doesn't even wait a split second as soon as the referee Blows a whistle to take it. He just sprints and he just just slams it home and celebrates. I feel like that's that's a good strategy. I always resonated with. I also feel like there should be like a a rule, like an unwritten rule, that the coaches go through with the players. If you're not feeling confident, just strike it. Like, don't do this soft thing where you try to place. I feel like if you're not confident and you try to place it, you're not going to be able to place it. You just throw, you're just shooting something really weak. Um, basically just off-center. But I feel like if you just do the whole, like almost Roberto Carlos, just put your laces through it, I feel like that's a good strategy if you're not confident. But
1: what do I know? Um, I think the best strategy is to is to do the thing where the ball goes into the net and avoids the keeper. That's that's just what I do. But But what do I know? It's amazing
0: how that simple idea just, you can't do it <laughs> when you're just not there mentally. It's pretty crazy. Um, I wanted to go back for a second to the discussion of were these the two best teams because we got sidetracked. Uh, if you look at this Italy run, they actually got... They progressively struggled more and more the uh, coming out of the group stages. After the group stages, they had that Austria game that went to the wire. Then they had the Belgium game that I think if De Bruyne was playing healthy and Lukaku just is a millimeter better with his finishing. Belgium win that game. And then you had the whole Spain thing. And Italy, as much as they were they were good at adjusting in this game, they had zero answers for Spain over 120 minutes. And I don't know how they survived it, but they did. And then they had the first 30 minutes of this game, which were really uncomfortable, but then they wrote it out. Um, I think, I feel like Spain was just getting started a little bit too late. Like I feel like they finally find themselves a little bit too late and that was against Italy. But I feel like there was a case if, you know, if this is the biggest problem, it's their fault. So I'm not, it's not to excuse them. It's their fault. Luis Enrique didn't figure out who his best lineup was. Literally, he didn't do it before the tournament. Every game leading up to this was a different lineup. And then in the tournament, he didn't know. And then he finally, I think, figured it out. Um, So I wonder like just looking ahead, guys, because I feel like this England team is far from done. And this Italy team is pretty young, bar their backline. Um, Spain is pretty young. Belgium is still going to be around, around in two, two, Oh, I guess freaking the World Cup is uh, next be- year. Belgium
1: are done. Belgium are done, I think. You I know the mean, World yeah, yeah, Cup Belgium is like two
0: months away? When is the World Cup? Like 18 months. All right, same thing. But you know what I mean. Yeah, but it's in the winter. I...
1: <laughs> so, De Bruyne will be that much older and he'll be great, but it's just him and Lukaku. I mean, I don't like Roberto Martinez's tactics at Belgium at all, but also Belgium just don't have, like, great players outside of them, you know? Um, so, if De Bruyne is healthy, that's what gives them the boost. But, like, do we expect <laughs> do we expect Hazard, the, the aid in Hazard, to be back? I don't think so. Um, the thing with Italy is also, like, their depth isn't good, like, really at all, like, Emerson having to come on for Spinozola who got injured, right? Um Bernadeschi, who basically hasn't been a good player since he he helped Juve in that comeback versus Atletico Madrid. Um I like Bilotti, but he's not like an elite striker or anything. The, my my defense of Italy would be in the knockout was one, the Locatelli tax. This is what Mancini gets for not for not starting Locatelli and going back to Berati on reputation. Something I feel very strong about, even though is a great player. I just think Locatelli provided much greater balance that that side needed. And I think it was the Austria game where he comes on um, and he makes the difference in extra time with his positioning in terms of how the, how that impacted the goals that ended up winning, which I thought was great for my argument. Um, But also versus Spain, which I think Spain played better, but at least to me, it just felt like the whole first half, especially, was just exaggerated beyond belief because, yeah, Spain had the control but they like literally created like almost nothing, and their defense this, so they was so vulnerable. They, their defense was vulnerable. I mean, I guess if you want to be if if we want to be fairer, we can talk about dangerous box entries. And they had that miscontrol. I forgot who miscontrolled it, but Pedri had that incredible pass early on. But I thought Italy were were basically fine defensively. It's just that the bigger problem was their possession game was just completely off and Spain were pressing well but Italy were so obsessed with going long and Bonucci was having a really poor game on the ball right which and he's kind of the centerpiece of where everything starts I don't think the midfield was necessarily having a great game of the ball they were really wasteful on counterattacks and then everything started falling to Donnarumma to distribute as already mentioned before like Dude gave me fits with some of his passes versus Spain. So, like, I, I think the whole story for that game is a little more complicated. But, yeah, I mean, it I, I, do, I do think the idea that Italy started to struggle a little more as the knockouts went on is true. And it was something I was worried about when I wrote about them in the group stages because, one, you know, I, I was afraid of burnout with the intensity of their style. They were the most aggressive pressing team in the group stages. They relied on their pressing a lot because of how old their back line is. And again they, they don't really have depth, so right when Spinazzola is out all of a sudden that that entire left-hand side becomes entirely dependent on Insigne. And that's the interesting thing for me going forward with Mancini is like I think the 11 generally picks itself based itself, there's the debate between Locatelli and Verratti. but when those guys are not able to play and I suppose we should just keep expecting injuries like this, right? Because the the schedule isn't getting decongested anytime soon. How do you react to that? and i'm not convinced italy has the answers off the bench like spain does like england does like france does
0: i think it's interesting well, though I... like if you talk about depth for the world cup i think one of the the coolest things about being a football fan is having no idea what like what's going to happen like from now until then and what players we don't even know about are going to emerge to add to their depth like in the case of italy i don't know who that player is in the case of spain like again, if this was Euro 2020, we wouldn't have seen Pedri in the mix. And we wouldn't, you know, like these players who came out of nowhere for like, like even Chiesa for Italy. I feel like there's going to be players like that who will show up in Qatar in 2020. If, you know, I I kind of prefer as much as the other football for that World Cup just to not happen. But, you know, assuming it does go ahead, I think there's going to be a lot of players maybe we may not
2: even know about now that could add to that depth. It's, yeah, that's it's on the table.
1: That's fair. Well,
2: and, Pastoni who uh, I, I don't think he even played in this tournament for Italy, and he's—I mean—I think he's one of the best young center backs in the world. So they've—they've uh, they've got plenty. Of, I think to Kian's point, there may be some other guys that just come up through, yeah, and that's we, totally. We don't true. even know about yeah. So and then I wanted to ask you, from a Real Madrid perspective regarding Spain, uh, I guess, do you guys think? any Real Madrid player will get back into the squad now, uh, like a Lucas Vazquez or a Carvajal. And do you think, does Sergio Ramos get back into the squad? Or does Luis Enrique feel like we need to move on to a new generation and stick with Laporte and Eric Garcia and bringing Sergio Ramos in as a reserve doesn't work?
1: I don't think, I don't see how Ramos gets back in. I, I would be really surprised if Carvajal doesn't, if he gets back to form, because Spain don't really have a right back. So that, I mean, they were, they were doing the whole Marcos Llorente thing, et cetera, et cetera. Like Carvajal would be a lock if he's able to get back on form and stay fit. I don't see how that wouldn't happen. I, I still thought Nacho could have been useful here in this tournament, but if Carvajal is fit, it probably locks out Nacho as well. So Carvajal is the main guy for me. Um, Lucas Vazquez, again, could have been useful as a right back, but he didn't want that. But again, Carvajal is fit. He's the main guy. Other than that, I mean, I don't know, probably no one else.
0: I mean, with Asensio, I, it's hard to see him working his way back because if you look at the players, like Ansu Fati is going to come back, Ferran and Olmo. Um, they have a lot of talent on the wings, And unless Asensio...
1: And the tra- Traore, who barely played as well, so...
0: I also... And Marcos Llorente, who's probably... That's his best position. Um, I think with Ramos... If he plays regularly with PSG and he's healthy when the World Cup rolls around, I could see him getting back because the center back position is not at this very moment. I actually thought that was like probably their weakest link. And, you know, on paper, Pau Torres and Laporte is pretty good. Pau Torres struggled in this one. Laporte, I thought, grew into it. Eric Garcia wasn't really tested. And I don't know if he's going to be the guy like a year from now. I could see Ramos playing himself into contention again. Who are our other
2: candidates
1: so do we see Sergio Ramos starting over uh Kimpembe Marquinhos or I think we they're saying, gonna
2: play three in the back. Okay. With winning backs. Well or, or you could just push Marquinhos up to
1: Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna ask. Is Marquinhos just gonna become the defensive midfielder now? They
2: might do like a hybrid thing too. I mean oh. they got a, they got plenty of options. But I I did wanna say that um I think Torres stock has fallen quite a bit in this tournament. And, yeah. I, and I know he's been linked with us, but I think his stock has, has fallen. I thought he
1: was terrible, if I'm being honest.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he struggled. Um, I, I Look, if you look at Spain's issues in this tournament, given that a lot of them were at that position, Ramos would have really helped, man. Nacho would have too. Nach- Nacho was better than any partner Laporte had. So that's what you get
1: don't tell that the Villarreal USA fan account (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: I uh, I had to say
0: where um, where do you do you guys want to do we do we already do you guys feel like we've already talked about that Copa America final in the five seconds or do we have to go back to it well I I I think we can talk about Casemiro Vinicius and stuff
2: yeah yeah I do have some notes on them um I can kick us off, and then, if we want to go from there, go for it. I, I just think um, like once you get past all the 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 rough tackles and the fouls and the stop start of the opening twenty minutes or so, what I saw play out was basically Argentina. They go up early. They were happy to sit deep, absorb pressure. I thought they did a good job of cutting off passing lanes to Neymar and then just fouling him whenever he did get on the ball to prevent him from getting any momentum. But I felt like Brazil's midfield was far and away the biggest issue in this match. And Casemiro was asked to play like Tony Cruz. He was asked to he was the guy that was asked to do everything in build up play. He was the one who was supposed to distribute out and find the different passing lanes and hit the diagonal long balls and he was just asked to take on way too much responsibility in that regard. And I felt like they needed a lot more technician, creative types, like some more just technical midfielders to to get the job done there and help them with build up much like real madrid they just have croos and modric drop back to to build up play like you don't want they i felt like there was far too many times even in the dying minutes of the game they were relying on casemiro to to distribute the ball out and that's just not what you want
0: yeah <laughs> that was a uh... I mean, that was a really rough game. And I and I have to look at the final stats, but I remember looking at it at halftime, and he, Casemiro, and Neymar together had lost possession 23 times. And you look at just like his heavy touches under pressure. Um, I, f- I feel like even his giveaway, like he had one really bad giveaway to Messi at the top of the box. Then Messi beats him. Then he kind of recovers. He had some bad passes that wide, late, early on in the game, and every, like everywhere in between and that wasn't unique to him but i i did feel like like once once, <laughs> once just basically stripped the entire midfield and put like 800 attackers on and casemiro by himself um you just know like he probably called zidane before the game he's like hey if i'm down in the 70th minute and I need a goal what do i do and zidane was like just put casemiro as the guy who saves you in transition but I think Zidane forgot to tell him that you should be sending Casemiro into the box as your striker. And, you know, maybe putting other midfielders in behind him to to let him do his thing. But I, I felt like it was it was one of those things that just kind of felt sent shockwaves to the Brazilian build-up. And everyone on Brazil was just... It was contagious. No one could string a pass together, especially in the final third. And Argentina were, like, compact in phases and they defended well at spurts. They pressed well. But they also... um lost the ball a million times in their own half and brazil just couldn't capitalize it was very clumsy i was disappointed with
1: brazil um so but yeah the funniest part of the game was when tite went with no central midfielders except literally casemiro yeah and that just summed up the entire final for me (laughs) um yeah like i at that point, no I one was to get like, the,
2: the ball to those players. He had literally <laughs> no one to get the ball to those players.
1: I was really surprised when he took Fred off. I, I mean, I, I didn't think he necessarily played all that well in the first half. But uh, of that double pivot, Fred has been like the primary progressive passer. And he is always liable to do something stupid on the ball and make mistakes, which is why he's not elite at it. But when in the aggregate, he helps you move forward a lot. And that was like, he was the one carrying that duty of that double pivot. So then to remove him, to then bring on other attackers, it was like, sure, you've got all the offensive talent, but like Matt was talking about, now how do you get the ball to them? And there was really no way to do it in an organized fashion, and it was—it just became even more chaotic, with players into Argentina's hands more. And so, unless Neymar dropped all the way down next to Casemiro, which is what he ended up doing, there was no way to get it forward. And yeah, I mean, Neymar's great at that. He can—he can still make an impact that way. But you just make life so much harder for him. And yeah, it was just—it was—it was a bit bizarre. But I guess that's Copa America for you
0: yeah um it was look it was still a lot of fun and uh i'm not sure when they're gonna have the next one i saw a lot of people joke about like you know now that messi's won it maybe they dial it back maybe they go back to every four years i don't know what, i don't know isn't if it, the
1: next one scheduled for um the next world cup after qatar
2: oh god is it
1: i could be wrong i think someone told me that i'll have
2: to i have to check you're never allowed to have rest it's not allowed (laughs) it's crazy matt
1: am i right or are you i don't know i don't know
0: (laughs) the next one is scheduled for 2024 so that's a three-year break between uh this and the next one so uh never mind
2: yeah so kian we want to hear your messy rant
1: yeah, I mean, I have something to say, but I I expect Keon's will be like more visceral, because he was he was going off on the managing Madrid account about it.
0: Me? I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it was you. It was it was you for 100%. The FIFA cousin thing was hilarious.
2: I
0: actually, I actually feel like, um, look, I I actually wrote an article about this which I finished today, and I don't know where or when it's going to be published, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but. I think the gist of it is like when you look at this you know we we tend to we always tend to as human beings remember the most recent thing which erases the rest of it so if Messi had won seven six straight Copa Americas and lost this one I think the narrative would have probably been something really stupid like he chokes he choked like you know something like that if but now it's flipped and like he finally won one and by the way Copa America has happened, I, I did the math, since 2005, since Messi made his debut for Argentina, the Copa America has happened seven times. That's three more times than the European, cha- three? yeah, it, so seven times compared to the European Championship, which has happened four times in that same time span. Uh, so he's had a ton of cracks at it. The Copa America is also flooded with all these teams that they invite to fill up the tournament, like Qatar like, uh, Jamaica, Haiti, Costa Rica, Japan, all these random teams. They didn't this time because of COVID. Um, it's, I'm not, I, I don't want to say it's easier football. Cause I think that's, I don't think, that's not what I mean. I, I certainly will stand by the idea that it's tactically inferior in the sense that like, it's the defense is worse. It's more chaotic. There's more space Um, and the the path to to, the path to winning it is not as difficult as if you're doing the European championship it's also not as condensed with good teams but I don't want to say that it makes it necessarily easier because it's also extremely physical and heated and there's a lot of tension there's a lot of um, emotion that goes into it and the greatness of players like Messi and Neymar also attracts a lot of um, heavy challenges and I, I don't think that that's that makes it necessarily easier than to do it in Europe so I don't want to downplay it in that sense but I do think like if you look I have you guys want to just be blown away for a sec I don't and I don't again I don't I don't want to spoil my article too much and I don't want to go too we're deep ready. on this right now but I went back and looked at every single time Barca were eliminated since 2015 from the Champions League in the games they were eliminated since that time span Messi has not had a single goal contribution in 6 years. He has not scored a classic in a Clasico since Ronaldo left. He has not been a big game player for a long time now. And I'm just like I feel like that matters when we're talking about because the reason I bring this up is because we're talking about the GOAT. Like when moments like this happen like we we're, we're all talking about the GOAT because he won this tournament now. Um, he had a bad final by the way in he, I think he he pretty much he had two attempted dribbles, he had two key passes, he lost possession seventeen times. Um, he did have a bunch of touches, which and so he wasn't like a ghost or anything. He also had that six yard box chance which he fluffed. But leading up to the final, he was great, and just like Ronaldo, like I don't think you can take this away from him because if we're going to count ronaldo's where he didn't play in the final with portugal then you're to, you have to count you have to count both or you don't count either that's the way it works but i do feel like if we're talking about the goat i i really if i had to choose one player and if it's it's a one big game tournament or one big game that i have to win i don't know if i could rely on him i'd i'd probably choose ronaldo instead in that scenario
1: so I think it's really poetic that Messi was horrendous in the final, and that's when Argentina ended up winning, because I think it shows how stupid the narratives are in terms of determining, you know, something like a greatest of all time debate based on one game, or like, you know, the the idea of winning an international trophy, because this may have been the worst game he's ever played in a Copa America. Um, And I'd I'd, I'd be really difficult to find a worse one, because he was genuinely awful the one time he had a chance to make an impact was that one versus one chance he completely fluffed and then something everyone else is ignoring um i guess for obvious reasons but uh messi gave the ball away when there was still 10 seconds left on the clock and brazil were on a counterattack and the ref blew the final whistle <laughs> because he he, he wanted the, he wanted the game to be over as much as the rest of us but like messi he actively hurt his team in that game which i mean it happens like games like this happen and it's funny to me that Messi has played better. Um, I, I mean, I don't think he was necessarily amazing in the World Cup final, but he's played in three other Copa America finals, which I think he was all better than when he played like this. And it's funny that this is the one he wins, right? And you, it, it just doesn't make any sense to be like, okay, I'm going to judge who the greatest of all time is over thousands of games based on whether they win an international trophy, right? Like, completely discounting the fact that, like, many great players will have never played with a great team, right? So that, this, I'll just say this doesn't change my view of Messi at all. Like, it literally doesn't alter even a little bit how I view Messi because the sample size is so huge. And there's something wrong with your analysis if you're letting one game turn everything, right? And this is the issue, I think, for everyone who's been saying, okay, Messi can't be the GOAT because he hasn't won an international trophy then he plays like shit he wins an international trophy and suddenly your argument has to change and it feels weird because he didn't yeah. play well like that's the problem right so that that's the whole thing that's one whole side of it that annoys me the other thing is is this idea that Messi like football owes this to Messi right like this idea that doesn't matter he played badly or whatever like he's done so much he deserves it I just think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. We're talking about competitive sport. Literally, no one is des- deserves anything. No one is owed anything. Like we're talking, we're all talking about a guy. Like we talk about Messi. Like he plays. He's played on a poverty team for his entire life. Like he is like LeBron playing with the Cavaliers or something. His entire career, right? Just wasting away his prime. This guy. From like the the b- very beginning of his prime, played with arguably the greatest manager of all time, inside the greatest midfield of all time, with the tactical system most suited to his strengths and maybe the greatest tactical system of all time, multiple Champions League trophies, multiple Ballon d'Ors by the time he was 25, 26 years old, been to th- three Copa America finals, not including this one, I think, and so that's four right but before this all the, the entire discussion being he was unfortunate so 3 Copa America finals a World Cup final what the fuck are we talking about when we when we say this guy is like so unfortunate this guy's faced so much pain no one just he's, he's had every chance in the world literally every other footballer maybe in history would die to have been in the place that Lionel Messi has been in right like such perfect conditions through the vast majority of his career and the one time he faces real adversity with this Argentine national team because we they were really good side in terms of personnel up until you know like 2016 they started to fade away and that entire period for when messi actually wasn't with a very good team seems to have now dominated this discussion around his entire career like it's it just it's it's gotten it's gotten really annoying it's gotten a bit much it's gone past the point of okay you're a Lionel Messi fan you're really happy that Messi has won to just making literally everything about him there are other people on that Argentinian national team who also mm. like are really happy to win that right like it's literally I mean we've slandered and I think irreparably hurt players reputation simply because they did not deliver god-king Lionel Messi's international trophy. Like, there will be people who forever think that Higuain is a fucking horrible striker because he missed a chance in a Copa America final, right? There, if Di Maria didn't score that chance, people will think... I, I, I had to hear for years from Barcelona fans telling me that Di Maria was awful and he was a finished player while he was still doing world-class things at PSG. I've had enough of the whole poor baby Messi has suffered enough nonsense. Like, there's... Countless numbers of players who have been in unideal situations, who have not won things because of things around them. And this guy has literally won almost everything, has had every chance in the world to win everything. And we pretend this guy is like the most sorry person, most unfortunate person in the world. Like, I, I think let's get grounded back to reality a little bit. We can have the whole de- GOAT debate about Messi. That's completely valid. Um, I personally think he's the GOAT. Um, I think it's okay to have a different opinion, obviously that's that's the whole value conversation in and of itself but this whole thing about football owes it to Messi. like who are we talking about here like a guy who hasn't won anything in his career got injured for half of it had to fight and claws i mean it's ridiculous like that's the part of the whole thing that annoys me and uh, i mean it's just beyond cringeworthy like I, what are we even talking about that's what i had to get off my chest
2: well, and the point you made regarding the, the narrative that this Argentina team's just been awful for however long Messi's been a part of it. That's, I agree with you. I mean, that's where it's absolutely ridiculous. Yes, maybe um, following that World Cup final, they had a, a couple poor years where it just didn't seem like the talent was coming through. But prior to that, oh my God, they've always been stacked. And now, again, it's looking like they have a, a decent uh, crop of young players coming through. Rodrigo de Paul, I just can't get over how impressed I was with him throughout this tournament, especially last night. Uh, that's going to be a huge pickup for Atletico Madrid. But Di Maria I mean, Di Maria is the one, you arguably, you could say, has done more for this Argentina team than, than Messi. I mean, he's, he's the one, even in the... Um, olympic final in the u20 he's the one that scored the goal it was a very similar goal to the one he scored last night so um and in the in the world in that world cup on the passage to the final obviously he he didn't play the final because he was injured but he was unbelievable that was right after la decima i mean he was again he was in the form of his life so there's there's been a lot more than just Messi. i mean i i think like
0: also the fact that he's a free agent now i would actually really think about if I were him, I don't, you know, It's <laughs> not even like I'm not even trying to make a lame realm Madrid joke. I would actually think about going to Manchester City for my legacy, because if you think about it, if he goes back to Barca, like that's not gonna, he's not gonna win a Champions League title. I don't think with them. Like they're just in this weird rebuild phase. They can't even sign the players they're trying to sign. Um Their sporting direction was out of whack for a while. Maybe it's different now with Laporta, but certainly like signing Griezmann, they just got in each other's way. Um, You know, bringing in Aguero, a player that he never even really meshed well, is like an inferior version of Suarez at this stage of his career. It's not going to get them over the hump. If he goes to Manchester City, he immediately just puts them, they put each other in contention for that. Championship title. If if I cared about my legacy and if I was messy, I'd just go there because um, I don't think you're gonna you're gonna you're not gonna catch up to again. If you care about the whole GOAT thing and the legacy thing, and it's gonna be a topic whether we like it or not, you got to catch up to Ronaldo's championship titles at least. Um, you're not gonna do it at Barca, I don't think. And, and on the flip side, I don't think I don't think Ronaldo's gonna be able to do it at Juventus. So I don't I don't know how they pull away from each other. I, I think what would be ultimately the most satisfying ending to this that could possibly settle it. And it will be it right or wrong is if somehow we got Portugal Argentina in the World Cup final next year, that would be like the perfect way to settle it. But I, I do like feel still so um like even
2: I don't think the I don't think the Ronaldo versus Messi fanboys could handle that. A Portugal versus Argentina World Cup final.
0: I feel like the Illuminati on that day should just... Someone ex- would literally agree die. Literally shut would someone someone <laughs> would
1: literally die. Like, we saw what happened today with how the England fans lost their mind about them being finally in a final. Someone would get killed. Like, I'm not joking. That's yeah, how but the difference
0: is Ronaldo versus Messi fanboys are not real. They're just... Thirteen year olds in their basement. They're not Dax people going Did to you, stadiums. You,
1: you there's actually there's actually someone actually got killed over an argument. I remember Sid Lowe sharing that article a couple of years back. Someone actually killed someone else over Ronaldo and Messi <laughs> argument. God, that's how that's how mad it is. And like and that's what I mean so much of that rant I was having comes from that, right? Like where obviously love your player. Just because I don't like Messi doesn't mean you don't have to like him. Obviously, you love your player, you back your player. But when it gets to a point, especially in a team sport, where we just become so obsessed with one individual and the entire story is bent around them, like at a certain point, especially journalists, and obviously fans are going to be worse with it and have more latitude, but especially with journalists who have a certain responsibility to, yes, build compelling narratives, say something that's entertaining, but also reflect reality, when it gets to the point where it's just all bent around Messi Like Think about how this story will be told in the future. Literally no one else matters. No one else will be remembered because it's literally just messy. And I just think that's an extremely sad and kind of pathetic way to tell a story, right? Imagine if, and people have certainly tried this, right? I'm not saying it's just with him, but imagine if we tried to pretend those three Champions League titles in a row were all Ronaldo right it's it's everything is about him it's his destiny he was owed that after what happened you know and in terms of being dominated by Barcelona right he suffered so much it was all about him you know the team wasn't good enough the team failed him in 2015 and I think Ronaldo played good in that final right we can say Bale failed him like how insane does that sound yeah like I mean you can even talk about it with Portugal right like it's 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 beyond ridiculous but it's with these two people people are have lost their minds with these people that any possibility of a rational discourse even from the people who are supposed to be you know objective and a bit elevated from it just becomes impossible and that is why if there's a portugal versus argentina final someone is going to die and i mean that seriously <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think you bring up interesting and valid points about the way we remember things and, you know, it's all about being all about one player and stuff. I think naturally that's what happens when you're the best player on the best team, You know, like that's the way we remember Jordan um and that's why Pippen kind of went to the shadows and and like it's it's just by nature that's what's going to happen. You're the best player on the best team and you're the best arguably the best player of all time. That's just the way it's going to be remembered unfortunately. Although like, you know, those who you know, to be fair, like, I'm sure there's a lot of people who remember it for all the details and the nuances and the great supporting cast and all that. And, you know, obviously in Real Madrid, we, have, we had other Ballon d'Or winner eventually in Luka Modric. We know how many great players there were on that dynastic team. Um, I, I, I feel like we could go on like 20 more minutes on the subject at least, but I want to put her to a halt here. Um, but before we wrap it up, um there's two questions we need to catch you up on on the podcast. So we've been doing this thing, and I forgot to ask you last time I had you on. We've been asking everyone on staff uh, a non-football question and getting their answers, and it's usually this weird existential philosophical thing. So, there's two questions we need to catch up. We need to catch you up on that. Matt has already answered. The first question is in relation to when Gareth Bale said he believes in aliens and he's been trying to convince everybody about that fact on the Welsh national team. Do you believe that aliens exist? And if so, do you believe they're here? Or do you believe that it's just more of like a math thing that I'm sh- that you think they exist somewhere?
1: Well, you already know my answer because we had this debate. Yeah, this but line. the listeners I think, don't. I think there's a mathematical like, certainty, basically, that they exist. Um, I'm less sure about whether they're here and what all this like documents and stuff that's been released mean. I think there's a pretty high chance that the government is just cool with that being a story when they're testing out like secret tech. And um, I mean, I've I mean, I've read and I I follow like science writers who are not necessarily that convinced that this is like hardcore evidence that they're here. I mean, it's possible. I mean, if I think they exist, then it's not totally ridiculous that they're here. But um, I, I don't know if this is necessarily the evidence. But regardless, I don't know how much it matters necessarily if I end up Coming to the final conclusion that that I think aliens do exist. I think I, I it would be there are some arguments, some semi-rational arguments for why that wouldn't be the case that there might not be alien life elsewhere. But I don't buy it. I, I think it's I think it somewhat boils down to the arrogance and believing that we can be the only you know intelligent life on this earth. That's I, I don't think that's possible. I, it would be really sad if human beings were the most intelligent life in all of the universe. I think, but devastating. Um, no uh it's me, uh did, what, what did what does matt think about it
2: i was uh, i was the same as you i think um that i was open to the perspective and i moved to it i had to do a little bit more research which i did do after uh after kian asked me um and i watched that minute special you talk Keon. oh wow um and so, That's yeah initiative. i'm uh i'm yeah yeah and i'm uh i yeah i definitely believe that we're we're not um, the only intelligent life form out there. So,
1: there's like Keon's a full blown conspiracy theorist. <laughs> He's Alex Jones on the podcast.
0: Um, I uh, no, I mean, I'm always just interested in it because, like, I, I, I believe like it's a certainty that they're out there. I don't. know I, I'm not sure that they're here. I don't. I'm. I'm not all the way there. I saw a video that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was on Joe Rogan, and he was, he was being a big party pooper on it. He was basically saying, you know, we can't these videos might not be valid and all, all this and he said it in a much more eloquent scientific way than I did but uh he's being a bit of a buzzkill on the subject but Joe Rogan was like pushing back and 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 trying to offer like the alternate view but I I'd like to think cuz you know like there's that whole Stephen Hawking theory where he says like if they exist we shouldn't go f- look for them and or or look to like connect with them at all because if they exist they're probably more advanced than us and they'll probably wipe us out i want to as great as Stephen hawking is i push back on that a little bit i think that if they're advanced enough technologically to get here i feel like they're also spiritually evolved and spiritually advanced as well and i feel like i'd like to think that that could be delusional but you know there's also the 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 alternate view of that is like maybe they're people are progressive but maybe their government the ones that are here have have worse intentions for example but that's just kind i i don't know if they're here but i'd like to think if they can get here i'd like to think they're also spiritually evolved and that you know they come here with decent intentions this is what i'd like to put it um the other question om is what was it oh yeah Do, do you believe or do you think we live in a simulation
1: I really have no idea. I I don't know if there's really any way we can tell. Uh, I, I personally, I don't know how much it matters. Really, is my opinion um, because if if it feels like reality and we believe it's reality, then I mean it is reality, right? Like uh, me being like uh, a computer simulated in, like thing or whatever is not going to, for example, make Real Madrid losing a Champions League final hurt any less, right? I'm not going to sit back and be like, oh, you know, it's cool now because I'm not actually real. If I'm tricked into believing it's real, then it's basically real in a material sense. Is how I look at it.
0: I feel like there's like a metaphor in the way, like what you just described. Like you basically, <laughs> if you if you live your life like a simulation, either way it doesn't matter. Then I asked this to Chris too. Like, would you live your life differently? You seem like you, like you would just live it the same, right?
1: I mean, if if there was some implication about like. Whether I could learn more or escape it, maybe pure curiosity would allow me to live my life differently. But if, if this information was just dropped on me and uh, I I couldn't do like nothing else that could happen, I don't know if I'd live my life any differently. I mean, like, what what, what else am I supposed to do? Like, it is what it is. Everything still feels real to me. I still got to live my life, right?
0: Wise words of Omar. But Matt, do you have anything to close this?
2: No, I, and I know <laughs> he you said last time I didn't have much to comment, but I, I don't. I think Chris Chris went down like a rabbit hole when we talked about it. he was he just like kept going and going and going. <laughs> he would he would radically change how he lived his life. He said, I'm pretty sure that's what he. Said. <laughs> uh, he's
1: watched he's he watched The Matrix too recently, like discount <laughs> what he said.
0: Matt, you got to go now. Watch a document on simulations and and, and, and come back <laughs> yeah, with new information yeah. next podcast. So yeah. So Matt, we're gonna be back on Tuesday, right? I don't know what we're gonna be t- talking about yet because this is a weird time, man. Now we actually have no games when we wake up tomorrow. That's weird. There's a ten day break from now until the Olympics. If you care about that. Um, I don't know. I can't promise I'll be watching that very closely to be quite honest. This is like a rare opportunity where I can actually hang out with people and uh, be with my family. So I don't know if I'm going to do that very closely, unless it's a Real Madrid game. I'll probably watch Rainier and I'll probably watch Kubo, who are the Spain guys we have. We have a few Spain guys. We have Ceballos. And Ceballos and Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll probably watch those ones, but other than that, um, yeah uh we'll be back tuesday i'm not sure for what yet but i'm sure it'll be exciting so that was a great sales pitch come over for the exciting thing we don't know what we're talking about yet over on patreon.com slash managing mood on tuesday uh matt thank you om thank you enjoy the nba game tonight and we will chat soon take care see you
2: guys